0: I'd like you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to be doing part two of the message series <clears throat> that uh, I've entitled called The Beautiful Savior. And the purpose is that we would truly see the beauty of Christ become enraptured with Christ. Uh, last week we embarked on this beautiful Savior and last week I, we looked at the Scriptures in Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 4. And we talked about Christ the beautiful Savior, but Christ as our substitute, as Christ came to be that substitute. Today we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9, and we're going to be looking at Christ our satisfaction, Christ our satisfaction. And He is our satisfaction in the sense that He perfectly fulfilled the atonement for sin for all who place their faith and trust in Christ. Christ is our satisfaction because only He can satisfy the justice of God. Christ is our satisfaction in that there is no other sacrifice that is needed. Christ is our satisfaction in all things pertaining to godliness are found in Him. Christ is our satisfaction in Him in Him and through Him are all things. Christ our satisfaction in that He is our and this is the point I really want to emphasize. That He is our greatest desire. That He is our greatest affection. That He is the longing of our soul, the very joy of our heart. Oh, to capture the beauty and the glory of Christ once again. You know, it often, I'm often reminded how words I often wonder, are there words in any kind of language given among men that does justice to the glory, the beauty, the honor of Christ? I often think about that with regard to salvation and grace. You know, is thank you adequate? Many times when I pray, you know, Lord, thank you for my salvation, that's... Does that do justice to what indeed God saved me from? When we closed last week's message, I shared with you four critical applications in light of the scripture that we studied, in light of this beautiful Savior. And I'm just going to repeat them. One, I asked you to consider Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, 8, "...whatever things are gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ." And I think as Christians, we need to contemplate, we need to consider Christ. Far above anything we own, far above anything we possess, far above anything we desire that we would consider Christ. Paul, believe me, was a man that had great accomplishments and great wealth when he embarked on his journey. But he considered all those things, all of the fame, all of the education, everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. That we would consider Christ. The second one is that we would contemplate. And contemplate would be what does it mean to be in Christ? To contemplate what it means to be in Christ. Is it merely a set of understanding certain truths about Jesus Christ? Paul says in Ephesians 3.19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. That's where we want to be, right? Don't we want to be filled with all the fullness of God? Then we need to contemplate Christ. Number three was to consecrate. The Christian life is a life of consecration to God. And here's a flash. The Christian life is a life of inconvenience. It's a life of service. It's a life of giving yourself to others. Paul says in Galatians 5.24, Now those things who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desire. A life of service. Why? Because Christ is so worth it. He is so worth it. And the fourth element was to crave. And I talked about to passionately desire Christ. Passionately desire the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Passionately desire to bring glory to God. That is our mission. And let me share something. That mission never changes. It never changes whether we live in a democracy or whether we live under communism, whether we have freedom or whether we are enslaved, whether we are free men or whether we are in prison. The mission of the believer never changes. It is that we are here to bring glory to God. And so today when we look at Christ as our satisfaction... What we see indeed is the totality of this beautiful, beautiful Savior. And it's very personal and perfect work for us as believers. And I'm, we're going to see two considerations as we look at the Scripture text. Number one, we're going to see the passiveness of our Savior in verses 4 through 6. And then we're going to see the passion of our Savior in verses 7 through 9. And it's my prayer that God may open our eyes to the beauty of our Savior. You know, there's a saying, right, that familiarity breeds contempt. That the more you become familiar with things, the more sometimes they lose the luster you take them for granted. Oh, that it would never be said about the church, that it would never be said about anybody here. That we have become so familiar with Christ. One of the drawbacks is that we have more Christian books and we have more Christian radio and we can go online and listen to Christian teachers and think that that in and of itself would fulfill us. But the truth of the matter is, we need Christ. And we need to be filled with the fullness of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're embarking to see. So let's look at our text for today. is going to be found in Isaiah 53. And we are going to be beginning just to pick up from context with verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. Where did Christ bear our griefs and sorrows? We all know on the cross of Calvary. There Christ bore our griefs and our sorrows. Those words, I think, we can hardly reconcile or fathom. But His bearing of our griefs and our sorrows upon the cross exceed anything that we could ever imagine. And He would bear that sorrow and that grief for every single individual who put their faith and trust in Christ. Notice what He does. That this Christ did this. Now, remember I shared with you Isaiah 53. It's Israel looking back. They're looking back on the day of redemption. They're looking back, and that's the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 10. They're looking back, they're looking back, and they're going, Oh my Lord, it was Christ. Christ was indeed the Messiah. That's why it's written in the plural. We did not esteem Him. we He bore our transgressions. He bore our guilt and sorrow. And so they look back and they look back and they realize one thing. They realize that Christ didn't come and die for a perfect people. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it reminds me, I I can't tell you how many times, I think I mentioned this last time, how many times I speak to people and they go, oh, the day I walk into a church, a roof is going to collapse on me. I gotta get myself right. I gotta got work out a few issues in my life. I gotta work out a few things in my life before I could start going back to church. Why? Because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Christ doesn't call perfect righteous people. Jesus said, I didn't come to call to, to call the sick. I didn't come to call the healthy. I came to call the spiritually sick. It's the sick who need a doctor. And that's what the work of the church is. Whether a church has 5,000 people, whether a church has five people, the work of the church is to go out and to bring the gospel of liberation, the gospel of peace, the gospel of sanctification, the gospel of power to those who are sick and enslaved with sin. And how do we do that? By the proclamation of the gospel By the proclamation of the gospel, men and women need to know that there is indeed a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And if that's you today, you're trying to work your way to goodness, you're trying to work your way to to peace with God, cease your labor, turn to Christ, repent and ask God to save you, and repent and turn from your sin and He will save you. Oh my goodness, he'll do a wonderful work in your life. He will change you from being bound to sin to knowing the glory of God. Here in, chapter, in verse 4, he says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, but yet we, right, Israel, looking back, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. You know what that means? That means. At the time of Christ, the generation at the time of Christ, when they saw Christ being beaten and punished and they saw him upon the cross, they thought that he was being punished by God because he was indeed a sinner. That's what the prophecy here is. Yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten, stricken by who? By God. How many times did Jesus preach? How many times did Jesus perform miracles? How many times did Jesus uh, wow the crowds with His wisdom and, and, and His message? And yet He was accused of being casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. You know Beelzebub? That was a demonic god. Lord of the flies, Lord of the dung. So when they said to Jesus, you cast out demons by Beelzebub, they were saying, you cast out demons because you're Lord of the dung. You're demonic. That power is not of God. And so consequently, in the look back, they said, we, the generation of Israel that saw these things, we ourselves esteemed him smitten and afflicted. And yet, Christ gave His life willingly. In John 10, 17-18, the Lord Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This commandment I received from the Father. He did so willingly. And we talk about the beautiful Savior, the beautiful Savior. This is one of the key components of the beautiful Savior. As Paul said in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still helpless. At the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And he did so willingly. Oh, what a beautiful Savior. Oh, the majesty, the glory of Christ. Where would any of us be had Christ not died for the ungodly? I was the ungodly. I was the filthy. I was the wretched. I was at enmity with God, and so was every other person who has put their faith and trust in God but that we should be a people of God, that we get to a place where we see this and we esteem the worth of Christ. And we marvel at such magnificent grace. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 6 talk about the the passiveness of this beautiful Savior. Look at verse 5. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourgings, by His wounds, we are healed. I think it's really critical that from a textual perspective we understand that this is the language of substitution. Christ was being offered as a sin offering for the nation of Israel and for all who would put their faith and trust in Him. Here we see a more graphic display. Well, you, you guys know that one of my favorite passages of Scripture is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, particularly verse 21. He made him who knew no sin become sin in our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ Jesus. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I think one of the singular most important verses in the Bible, because it talks about that substitutionary atonement that was made through Jesus Christ. But here in Isaiah 53 5, we see this now in more graphic look. Listen to the words being used here. He was pierced through for our transgression. This is speaking of the crucifixion that had not existed at the time of this writing. Crucifixion was not known at this time. This is seven hundred, approximately 730 years, give or take, before the birth of Christ. The prophecy of this. And the prophet talks about He was pierced through. He was punctured. Well, what does that? Only nails pierce through. The sword pierces through. He says He was crushed for our iniquities. That word crushed there literally means beaten. He was beaten for our iniquities. He goes on, he says the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. Chastening means being punished. Punished for something that was done. By His scourging, by His wounds, which refers to being whipped. That's what it is to be scourged. And we know, we'll see it coming up as we enter into the Holy Week on that Friday as Jesus was whipped and and, and beaten and His back was brutalized and laid open. He was scourged. By His scourging we are healed. Remember how I said that Christ did not come for the perfect and the righteous, but the lost and the unrighteous? Here the prophet Isaiah describes the Holy One dying for sinners who reject Him. Who reject Him. So that what? So that the guilty might have life. Peter captures this beautifully in 1st Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 5. He writes, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his grace mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." Why? You recall last week I talked about why What was the motivation of God to offer up His only Son? I said there's three reasons, three motivations that God has. And the first motivation was it pleased God. It pleased God. All you have to look over is Isaiah 53.10. But the Lord was pleased to crush Him. If He would render Himself a guilt offering, It pleased God. And here's the other bulletin. It pleased Christ. Christ was pleased. He did so willingly. He did so voluntarily. And I shared with you Hebrews 12 too. That consider Jesus, he writes. And run the race with endurance, he says. Fixing your eyes on Christ. And he goes on to say, who for the joy, for the joy. What does that word there mean in the New Testament? What does that word joy mean? It means literally for the joy. For the joy set before him did not despise the cross. That means he thought the cross was, the shame associated with the cross, the guilt associated with the cross, he thought it wasn't even worth it. To fulfill the His mission. He laid down His life. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the flock. Oh, beautiful Savior of Christ, if those things are true, and I submit to you that they are true based on the Word of God, which is inerrant, infallible, it cannot lie. It is the very, very Word of God. Those things are indeed true. Consequently... Christ can only be our satisfaction. What else could we possibly want? Paul in Romans 3 21 through 25 says this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Christ having paid for the sins of those who would believe in Christ through faith listen to this has the power to change lives. Change lives. Not modify lives not turn some bad behavior good but to change lives consistent with 2 Corinthians 5.17 if any Man, if any woman is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. All of the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. The glory of the gospel is when you see people who have repented and turned to faith in Christ. And you go, wow. If you're with us on Tuesday night Bible study, right? We have a young man on Tuesday night Bible study whose life has been totally altered, totally changed by the gospel, was heading one way and it wasn't a good direction, is now heading in a new way, and God is doing a work. And all of his old buddies and all of his old friends are saying, what happened to you? Why don't you want to go out with us? Why don't you want to do this with us? Why don't we want to do that? And all this person with his limited knowledge just go back and say, man, I tell you, I fell in love with Jesus. I am saved. I am saved. For all who have come to faith in Christ, for each person who has been affected by this beautiful Savior, each one of us has a story how Christ has saved our lives from the curse of sin. And how we were born again into a new hope. Let me share something with you. The glory of the Gospel The glory of the gospel is indeed the new birth. It is the new birth. Over the past few weeks, we had some of the men and some of the leaders in our church go up and testify. And they shared their testimonies of how they came to faith in Christ. And there was a common thread that flowed through all the testimonies. That each one of them had an encounter with the living God Through Jesus Christ. And they knew they had to surrender their lives, whether they came from a religious family, a church going family, or whether they were, you know, they came from no exposure to the gospel. Each and every one of them came to a crisis point where they had to come and surrender their hearts to Christ and repent, turn from their sins, and by faith embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. and When you're saved, and when you've come to faith in Christ, you come to that place where Christ is indeed your satisfaction. But let me share something with you. We have an enemy that doesn't tire. We have an enemy that's always running. We have an enemy who has set his scope upon believers in Christ. And his job is to tear down. And his job is to render impotent. And instead of seeing Christians that are filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, filled with Christ enamored and and, and just overwhelmed with Christ, He will continually, He won't stop, continue to chip away, chip away, chip away, chip away at your joy at your satisfaction in Him. And old Christian brother or sister, I encourage you with everything that I have. I encourage you by the very Word of God and the witnesses of those that have gone before us. Do not... Forsake Christ. Do not put any other substitute in your eyes beside Christ. Because on that great day, as my father told me on his deathbed, on that great day you will be judged by faith and have you held firm to the things of Christ. You could acquire all the possessions of the world you can achieve fame. You can could, you could have everything your heart's desire ever wanted to give you. But without Christ, you will not be satisfied to come to that place in Christ where He is indeed our joy, our satisfaction, our deepest longing, our desire is the place where God would have us be. Take a look at verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. Oh, what blessed words. I want to give you a clarification. The word astray, it doesn't mean that we as individuals were once on the right path but then fell off. Specifically, it means it's strayed, it erred from the truth. And I want to share something else with you there. The word all. It is synonymous with everyone. All of us. The language is all-encompassing. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Notice the observation of Israel. All of Israel have turned away. All have turned to His own way. Isn't that just like us? That's just like us. How we want to do what we want to become, the kings of our own lives. Remember that this is Israel looking back on what had transpired on the day of their redemption. I look back on my own journey. And so are my own willfulness, my own desire to have things my way. I am sure all who have come to Christ can say the same thing. Puritans used to talk about the crisis of the encounter. I love that term, the crisis of the encounter. When the soul gets one-on-one with the living God. And in the crisis of the encounter, you see the holiness, you see the magnificence, you see the glory, you see the splendor of God. And immediately it produces something in each and every one of us. We see our falling short. We see our sinfulness. And in the crisis of the encounter, we cry out to God for mercy. And What do we find? Grace and help in time of need. Oh, the grace of God. The mercy of God. I, can't, I keep going back to Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he says, God demonstrated His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners. How beautiful of a Savior is this. How wonderful is the glory of Christ that He voluntarily... You know, one of the most amazing things, I don't know that we get this a lot, right? We, you know, some of the, I, I would encourage you strongly, man, if you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Just read it. If you've got an audio book, listen to it on audio book. But one of the most amazing things of the great martyrs is none of them went to their death being pulled, being dragged, None of them. They all went willingly. Some of them saw them putting the fire together as they were going to burn them alive and stepped into the fire without ropes. Some of them sang hymns as the fire lit up their bodies and they sang hymns. But the most amazing thing, especially as we're approaching the Holy Week, is that Jesus Himself did not go to Calvary begrudgingly. And it's important that as Christians we understand that Jesus went deliberately to Jerusalem, went deliberately knowing that He was going to be betrayed and turned into the hands of sinful men, and He was going to be arrested, He was going to be tortured, He was going to be beaten, and He was going to be crucified. And He did so willingly and He never wavered. That night in the Garden of Gethsemane, just think about this, the, the, the Gospel of John records that when they came with the Roman troops and they came with the temple police, that when they said, we're looking for Jesus, and Jesus said, I am He, that they all fell down. Could you imagine this? It's estimated there were four or 500 people that came to arrest Him. We're looking for Jesus. I am he. Boom, they all fall down. They all get back up on their feet again. And they said, what do you seek? Whom do you seek? I seek Jesus. I am he. Boom, they go down again. Now that kind of power, why do you think Peter drew his sword? Why do you think Peter said, I'm going to fight these guys, 500 of them. Why do you think he said that? Because he saw the power of God and he said, hey, if Jesus could do that just saying, I am he, I'm going to take out that sword, I'm going to lop a few heads off. Now do you think in that moment Jesus could have called down a a legion of angels, Jesus could have went, be gone! They would have been laid out and he could escape. Did he do that? No. Whom do you seek? I am he. And he goes. They're going to strike the shepherd, and the sheep are going to scatter. He willingly, voluntarily gave himself a guilt offering for all who had put their faith and trust in Christ. How glorious! How magnificent! How spectacular. Why, why, why does this lose its meaning? I'll never know. But we as a church must be those kind of people that the sacrifice of Christ is ever before us. And we, we, we desire, we beg, we want to plead, we want to come into the fullness of Christ. Turn in your Bibles with me. I'm just going to digress a moment. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. This is a good admonition for us today. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Colossae who was being under assault by false teaching and false doctrine, specifically the early beginnings of Gnosticism. And look with me at verse 6. Listen to the admonition of the Apostle Paul. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now, listen to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, now listen to this, for in him all the fullness of de- in deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete i want to i want to give you a little bit clarity here he says if you receive christ jesus walk in him how did you receive him you received him by faith walk therefore in faith right he says you were firmly rooted now being built up in him and established in your faith that is through the teaching through the preaching of the word of god and the reading of the word of god now look at verse eight see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. It's the only time that word is used in the Bible, philosophy. Notice what he's saying. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, through empty deception, and according to the tradition of men, and according to the elementary principles. That, the, word, the Greek word there for elementary principles uh, kind of refers to the ABCs. The very simple things you would start teaching your children of. Don't don't be deceived by these basic things. Why? Because in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. And in Christ, if you are in Him, you have been made complete. We talk about a beautiful Savior if you are in Christ. You don't have to go look for Him. You have Him. This Christ of Isaiah 53, you have Him if you have come to Him. By faith and repentance. And if you have Him, you are complete. And if you are complete, you can be fully satisfied in Christ Jesus. All of us, like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way. Here's something else that we need to consider. God treated Christ as if He committed every one of the sins that every person who would believe, He treated Him as that. So He poured out upon His only Son, His wrath. Does this make sense? So that the innocent gets punished Feel guilty, go free. It only makes sense in the economy of God. It only makes sense in the economy of God. Here is, again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. That we, we, might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Remember, I shared last week with you that Isaiah 53 answers the riddle of the Old Testament. How could God be merciful, compassionate, and just, but not leave the guilty unpunished? I shared with you from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. By God's justice being satisfied, by his wrath being poured out on his son. God becomes the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. He paid for my sin with His life. He paid for our sin by His scourging. He paid for sin by His disfigurement. And His payment satisfied God's justice. And the key word there being, satisfied. Oh, what a beautiful Savior. What a beautiful Savior. Let's take a look lastly at the passion of our Savior. Verse 7. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. In Christ's passion we see the humility of Christ and he gracefully accepts the will of the Father to be that sin offering. It's very interesting by the way. This is the passage That the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in Acts chapter 8. When Philip goes up to him in the desert, led by the Spirit. He goes up to him and he says, do you know what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I know what I'm reading? There's nobody here to explain it to me. Well, that's a great definition of the church. Do you know what you're reading? Read the Bible. Well, read the Bible. But if there's nobody here to explain the Bible then how will you know? Notice in verse 7 that despite Christ's oppression, despite His affliction, that He was silent before His accusers, Christ fulfilled perfectly the type of the submissive Lamb of God. First Peter 1.18 and 19 says this, knowing that you were not redeemed from perishable things like silver or gold, from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Oh, glory of the Lamb! It's amazing. He's not the lion. He's not the. Uh, he's not the tiger of God. He is the Lamb of God. And you know, we're gonna. One of the things we're gonna do in, in in heaven, we're gonna sing glory to the Lamb of God. Look at Revelation's chapter five, verse six. And I saw saw between the throne of the four living creatures and elders a lamb standing as if slain. Glory to God for the Lamb of God. Glory to God for Jesus and this beautiful Savior who came to take away the sin of the world. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away as for his generation who considered he was cut off out of the land of living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Christ was sent as a lamb to the slaughter. He was indeed taken away by oppression and judgment. The generation that bore witness, we talked about this earlier, definitely saw him as something that was wrong, counterculture to the to, to the religious institutions of today, and I'll submit to you that Christ still is countercultural to the institutions of the religion today. They saw him as a transgressor, and yet he obediently offered himself. Paul writes to the Church at Galatians in Galatians 3:13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone. Who hangs on a tree? Do you ever think that Christ became a curse? A curse for us. For years, Israel had been hearing of a Messiah that would come and deliver the nation. A power, military, political figure that would come and deliver the nation. Who had would have believed a scandalous, a bloody, beaten, and a rejected Messiah? But as the prophet Isaiah said, as we just read, he was bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. This causes me to pause. Think, oh, beautiful Savior, how we repent at the thought that we also disregard You when we do not esteem Your worth of Your sacrifice, when we marvel not at the work of redemption. Oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on sinners such as we. Cause our eyes and our hearts to marvel in the light of Your salvation. To cast off everything that supersedes You in our hearts. And to fall at Your feet in adoration and worship. In these days of darkness, dear Lord. In these days of confusion, dear Lord. Cleanse our hearts from the dross of the world. That we would by faith apprehend Thee. That we would love Thee. That we would adore Thee. And become obedient to Thee. O Lord, truly, you would become our satisfaction in the Lord. Look at verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Even in death, Christ was assigned with the wicked. Crucified as a common criminal. Accused by the religious institutions of his day. It would appear the final chapter was written on his life. Yet his perfection and justice were written into the text of verse 9 because it tells us, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Oh, good Lord. We talk about a beautiful Savior. We talk about a wonderful Savior. What do others say about this beautiful Savior? The angels had declared Him, for born to you this day is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. John the Apostle declared, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist had declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Philip declared, we found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth The son of Joseph, the woman at the well declared, Come see a man who told me all things that I have done. Is this not the Christ, is it? The centurion declared, Truly this man is the son of God. Thomas bowed at his feet and cried, My Lord, my God. Peter declared, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. The writer of Hebrews declared, How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. In heaven they cry out saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, to receive glory, riches, wisdom, and might, and honor and blessing. And as believers we cry out with the saints of heaven, Worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is this beautiful Savior, Christ our Lord. Charles Spurgeon once wrote this, having, after reading Isaiah 53, having appropriating, have you an appropriating faith which takes the sufferings of Christ to be its own? Do you now humbly, but yet confidently, look to Jesus Christ, the great burden bearer of yonder tree, and know that your guilt was there? If so, rejoice and work worthily of your calling. If not, so. You do not know the first letters of the alphabet of religion. May the Lord teach you for His name's sake. It is for love that Christ laid down His life. The question is, what does it mean to us? That's the real question. Do you see a beautiful Savior that came and offered all for the sake of those who rejected Him? Do you see the beautiful Savior who for the sake of love endured the cross, despised the shame for love? Is Christ indeed your satisfaction? A satisfaction that nothing else compares with? What's your response? Make no mistake that God being holy, a God who hates sin so much that He poured out His own wrath on His Son, calls you to repentance. He calls you to give glory to God. And He so rightfully due of that glory. He tells you to turn away from yourself and run to the cross and cry out for mercy, mercy, mercy. Is there mercy for me at the cross? And if you cry out, the response will be yes. There is mercy at the cross of Calvary. There is mercy at the cross. A.B. Simpson wrote a hymn in the middle 1800s. And it's called, What Will You Do With Jesus? And it reads as follows, Jesus is standing in Pilate's Hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken what meaneth the sudden call what will you do with Jesus Jesus is standing on trial still you can be false to him if you will you kill be uh, you can be faithful through good or ill what will you do with Jesus will you evade him as Pilate tried or will you choose him whatever betide? vainly you struggle from him to hide what will you do with Jesus Will you, like Peter, your Lord, deny? Or will you scorn from his foes to fly? Daring to Jesus to live or die, what will you do with Jesus? Jesus, I give thee my heart today. Jesus, I'll follow thee all the way. Gladly obeying thee, will you say, this I will do with Jesus. And I love the chorus. The chorus of the song says this. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will He do with me? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we preach of this beautiful Savior. And in and of our eyes, in and of our own flesh, Lord, we cannot see Him. But, oh God, that we would see Jesus. That You would open our eyes, Lord, that we would see Him. That there would be none here today, Lord, that know not the Savior, And so, Father, Lord God, we plead with Thee. Open our eyes, Lord. Like the song says, Lord, oh, open our eyes. We want to see Jesus. To reach out and touch Him and say that we love Him. Open our ears, Lord, and teach us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus. Father, we pray that Your Word would go forth and accomplish Your intended purposes, bringing many hearts to repentance, bringing many hearts to revival, that we, Lord, truly would be followers of Christ, that He would be our deepest longing our greatest affection, our fullest joy, and our complete satisfaction. We ask You this in the blessed name of that beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.